everyone needs to understand that when you have such a threat, the first thing you yeah. need to do is to make sure this threat doesn't exist. I'll give you an example, okay? When you were fighting the Nazi regime, and I want to compare it to that. No, no, let's, let's not go down that road You were first yet, defeating the Germans, yeah. and then you had a Marshall Plan. So I'm saying first defeat the, the, this pure evil called Hamas, then work on a Marshall Plan for the, for the region. Right. And I'm, I'm for a Marshall Plan for the region, for sure. We need a Marshall Plan for the Gaza Strip. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of this Zyontology series. In the last episode, I looked at the eruption of Arab-Jewish violence during the early 1920s, which has shaped relations in Palestine ever since. I quoted the Zionist publication Contrast's declaration that the age of innocence has ended, and gave examples of how a more militant Zionist expression emerged. Zionism had always been a colonial enterprise, but the oxymoron of Theodore Herzl's gentle expropriation that the Arab population wouldn't mind being excluded from jobs and spirited across the border, and that this could be done in such a humane way as to set the entire world a wonderful example. This was now exposed for the fantasy it had always been. In this episode, I'm going to look at one Zionist who, in his writing, sought to be honest about the nature of their project. I'm talking about Vladimir Ziev Jabotinsky and his infamous essay, the Iron Wall. Vladimir Jabotinsky was born in Odessa in 1880, back when Ukraine was part of Russia. As a child, he was once slapped by a Russian army officer for playing too loudly. He immediately launched himself back at the full-grown man. This incident encapsulates the attitude Jabotinsky would have to conflict throughout his life. As a young man, he worked as a journalist. Throughout his life, he wrote several novels and plays, and translated classic works of literature into Hebrew. It's reckoned that had he focused on this, instead of his Zionist activity, he would have become one of Russia's great writers. The example that speaks to me is his school essay, My Summer Vacation, of which he produced many different versions for sale to his classmates. Anyone who's been involved on either end of such a transaction knows how hard it is to pull off. Jabotinsky became involved in the Zionist movement around the turn of the 20th century. He studied Hebrew and changed his first name to Ziev, meaning wolf. 1903 was a black year for Russian Jews, as it saw the outbreak of the Kishinev pogrom. Over two days, 45 Jews were murdered in the city of Kishinev, with hundreds of Jewish women being raped and around 1,500 homes and businesses sacked. Although violence against Jews had increased since the 1881 assassination of Tsar Alexander II, this was the worst anti-Semitic violence in over 200 years. The violence didn't come out of nowhere. The Jewish community had been blamed, incorrectly, for the murder of a Christian boy. A local newspaper conducted an anti-Jewish campaign, with one publication reading, quote, Our great festival of the resurrection of Christ draws near. The vile Jews are not content with having shed the blood of our Saviour, whom they crucified. Every year they shed the innocent blood of Christians and use it in their religious rites. They aspire to seize our beloved Russia. They issue proclamations inciting the people against the authorities, even against our little father, the Tsar. Brothers, we need your help. Let us massacre the vile Jews. End quote. Kishinev is only about a hundred miles from Odessa, and fearing anti-Semitic violence there, Jabotinsky wrote to Jewish community leaders 
calling for the establishment of a self-defence force. Establishing such a force is what he would do in Palestine 17 years later, after the Nebi Mursa riots. Upon finding one already existed in Odessa, he joined and became active in procuring funds and weapons and organising street patrols. He was then dispatched to Kishinev to distribute relief funds. Whilst there, he met several of the pogrom survivors. Strangely, for a journalist, Jabotinsky never wrote about this experience directly. He claimed that the pogrom made little impression on him and taught him nothing he didn't already know about Jewish helplessness. His biographer, Hillel Halkin, points out that this silence suggests the opposite, that the pogrom affected him too much to write about directly. His real feelings were expressed in his 1907 play, A Strange Land, where the protagonist, Gonter, says, I was in Kishinev. The relief committee sent me with some money and a bundle of old clothes. I spent three days there, and on the evening of the third, I fled. I couldn't breathe. I kept thinking people in the streets were pointing at me. There goes a kike. Look at that cringing yid. I ran and took a train and faced the window, not even getting up to stretch my legs at the stations. I forced myself to talk to no one. Look at nothing. Think of nothing. Nothing but the need to get away. End quote. Gonto warns his fellow Jews that they are defenceless against the violence that is to come. Quote, I say to you, stop living lies. You're in a lion's den. Have no illusions. Your dreams are nothing but a fool's effusions. At the volcano's edge, your fireflies. The glowworm's tiny spark can't cause a mountain to erupt. But get this through your heads. When it blows up, you will vanish with the first discharge. You and all your work, the labouring of ants. That's something you would better understand. End quote. Through the play, Gonta transforms from a revolutionary socialist, seeking to change the society he lives in, to a Zionist, seeking only to get away from it. Quote, so that, once and for all, we'll burn our bridges to this murderous land that can never be ours, learn to demand nothing from it, give it nothing in return, turn upon its riches scornful backs, and like a badge of honour wear our rags, walk away from its grand opulence and festive boards with their munificence, forgo it all, display the proud disdain of a vagabond who once was king. End quote. Jabotinsky was one of a number of Jews who turned their anger for Kishinev on the victims themselves. They saw Jewish men as passive and feminized, easy victims who refused to stand up for themselves and fight back. In fact, 250 Jewish men had gathered together and attempted to resist, armed with clubs and poles and a few guns. The authorities took this as evidence that Jews had initiated the violence and used it as a reason to blame them. Jabotinsky translated a poem by Haim Naham Bailik, titled The City of Slaughter. It repeats the accusation of cowardice and is said to be one of the most influential Jewish poems ever written as it encouraged a more assertive, militant attitude to arise amongst the youth. One illustrative verse reads, quote, And now go down to their dark cellar halls, there, on each daughter of your people, amid junk and old tools, seven uncircumcised savages piled, despoiling child in front of mother, mother in front of child, before, and as, and after their throats were slit, touched the red-stained pillow and the gory sheet, the satyr's cesspit and the wild pig's sty. See the bloodied axe and then espy 
crouched behind barrels and mouldy hides, the husbands, the brothers, the betrothed of young brides, peering through peepholes at bodies that rhyme. End quote. It really pulls no punches. Imagine writing something like that about people who had just seen their families raped and murdered, especially accusing the survivors of cowardice. Jabotinsky wanted to change what he perceived as this Jewish character flaw, and wrote a pamphlet concluding, quote, Let there be an end to the shameful heritage of centuries in which we went like sheep to the slaughter, all for one and one for all, to arms in our own defence. Fast forwarding to 1914, when Britain declared war on Turkey, Jabotinsky saw a great opportunity for Zionism. In contrast to Zionist leader Haim Weizmann, who attempted, successfully, to convince the British of the power of international Jewry, Jabotinsky offered more practical support. He proposed the formation of a Jewish military group to fight and take Palestine from the Turks. This became the Zion Mule Corps, who supported the British at Gallipoli, and ultimately the Jewish Legion, who fought in Palestine. This wasn't out of any law for Britain. Future Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Goroin had actually proposed the idea of a Jewish Legion to the Turks. Jabotinsky just backed the right horse. Biographer Hillel Halkin writes of how Jabotinsky was haunted by the memory of executing a Turkish prisoner he was escorting due to him no longer being able to walk. Halkin speculates that, whilst he never confirms it, Jabotinsky was probably the one who pulled the trigger. This was done after consorting with a rabbi and the fear the man would be eaten alive by jackals if abandoned. I mention this as it's important when considering what shaped the early Zionists to remember that many of them had had experiences of brutality through massacres and war that most of us have not. After the 1920 Nebuchadnezzar riots I spoke about in the last episode, it was Jabotinsky who, repeating his actions in Odessa, worked to establish the Haganah, the Jewish defence force that would ultimately become the IDF. The British were not impressed at the idea of having a second army in Palestine, and Jabotinsky at one point was arrested and sentenced to 15 years for possession of weapons. Rather nobly, he had handed himself in after the arrests of a number of his men, claiming that as their leader he bore sole responsibility. He spent his time in jail translating Dante into Hebrew, and was released three months later as part of a general amnesty following the Jaffa riots. The British accused Jabotinsky of inflaming the Arabs and contributing to the riot. This is no doubt true, but it is also the case that his defence force protected many Jewish neighbourhoods, and that the worst casualties were suffered in the ones British soldiers prevented them from reaching. He emerged from the episode as an international Jewish hero. Jabotinsky founded Revisionist Zionism, a form of political Zionism which opposed the creation of Jordan by Britain in 1921. They wanted a Jewish state on both sides of the Jordan River. Revisionist Zionism is the origin of the modern-day Likud party of Benjamin Netanyahu. Jabotinsky was also inclined to business and free markets, and opposed to the left-wing Zionism of David Ben-Goroin. He felt tying Zionism into socialist ideas discouraged Jews, with their entrepreneurial history, from emigrating to Palestine. This now brings us to 1923, and the essay Jabotinsky is probably best known for, The Iron Wall. If you're currently making an assumption about its contents based on that title, then it's probably an accurate one. The full essay is just over 2,000 words long, and I'll present some selective quotes from it here. He wrote The Iron Wall as a criticism of moderate Zionists, 
who thought Jews and Arabs could live together in Palestine without conflict. He begins his essay by denying the reputation he has acquired as an enemy of the Arabs, and strongly disputes that he wants to have them ejected from Palestine. In this, Jabotinsky took a softer and more moral line than many of his contemporaries, including Theodore Herzl, with his recommendation to spirit the penniless population across the border. Jabotinsky seems to have considered the idea both immoral and impractical, and remained consistent on this position throughout his life. He writes of developing a programme for different nationalities living in the same state, whose basis is equality of rights. He goes on to say, quote, There will always be two nations in Palestine, which is good enough for me, provided the Jews become the majority. End quote. This is, of course, an immediate contradiction. Jews and Arabs will be equal, but Jews will be guaranteed a majority, and therefore just that little bit more equal. Throughout this series, I've played clips from Jordan Peterson's interview with Benjamin Netanyahu. There is one where Peterson asks, So why do you think the claim that the Palestinians were somehow there in Israel first and have been displaced in a colonial occupation, let's say, by the Jews, why do you think that idea has gained such cachet, not least in the West? And later on, Netanyahu states, So what I'm saying, uh, and I'm saying this to you, uh, Jordan, and to your audience, there has been a complete fabrication of history. It's the biggest lie of the big lies that have permeated the 20, 20th century and the 21st century is to say that the Arabs were here before, that is, the Palestinians were here before the Jews when we were here for thousands of years, that we are the colonials when in fact it was the Arabs who were the colonials who dispossessed the original natives, and that is the Jews, that we came back to this land that was laid barren by the Arab conquest, brought it back to life, and allowed Arab immigration, what we call now Palestinian immigration, to come back in. And now they say to us, in unimaginable chutzpah, you know, they say, you don't belong here. They recreate ancient history, they recreate modern history, and this is a lot of Hokum, it's ridiculous. If Peterson had asked that question, why are Zionist Jews seen as colonialists, to the Russian-born Jabotinsky, he wouldn't receive a load of a historical waffle. Rather, Jabotinsky would have simply answered, because we are. I'm so confident of this, because this is exactly how he did unambiguously refer to Zionism in The Iron Wall. I'll now read some edited quotes to illustrate his main argument. Begin quote. There can be no voluntary agreement between ourselves and the Palestine Arabs, not now, nor in the prospective future. I say this with such conviction, not because I want to hurt moderate Zionists. I do not believe that they will be hurt, except for those who were born blind. They realised long ago that it is utterly impossible to obtain the voluntary consent of the Palestine Arab for converting Palestine from an Arab country into a country with a Jewish majority. My readers have a general idea of the history of colonialism in other countries. I suggest that they consider all the precedents with which they are acquainted, and see whether there is one solitary instance of any colonisation being carried out with the consent of the native population. There is no such precedent. The native populations, civilised or uncivilised, have always stubbornly resisted the colonialists, irrespective of whether they were civilised or savage and it made no difference whether the colonists behaved decently or not. The companions of Cortes and Pizarro, 
Or, as some people will remind us, our own ancestors under Joshua ben Nun behaved like brigands. But the Pilgrim Fathers, the first real pioneers of North America, were people of the highest morality, who did not want to harm anyone, least of all the Red Indians, and they honestly believed there was room enough in the prairies for both the pale face and the redskin. Yet the native population fought with the same ferocity against the good colonists as against the bad. Every native population, civilized or not, regards its land as its national home, of which it is the sole master, and it wants to retain mastery always. It will refuse to admit not only new masters, but even new partners or collaborators. This is equally true of the Arabs. Our peacemongers are trying to persuade us that the Arabs are either fools, who we can deceive by masking our real aims, or they are corrupt and can be bribed to abandon to us their claim to priority in Palestine in return for some cultural and economic advantages. I repudiate this conception of the Palestinian Arabs. Culturally, they are 500 years behind us. They have neither our endurance nor our determination, but they are just as good psychologists as we are, and their minds have been sharpened like ours by centuries of fine-spun logomarchy. We may tell them whatever we like about the innocence of our aims, watering them down and sweetening them with honeyed words to make them palatable, but they know what we want, as well as we know what they do not want. They feel at least the same instinctive jealous love of Palestine as the old Aztecs felt for ancient Mexico and the Sioux for their rolling prairies. To imagine, as our Arabophiles do, that they will voluntarily consent to the realisation of Zionism in return for the moral and material conveniences which the Jewish colonists bring with them is a childish notion which has at its bottom a kind of contempt for the Arab people. It means that they despise the Arab race, which they regard as a corrupt mob that can be bought and sold and are willing to give up their fatherland for a good railway system. We cannot offer any adequate compensation to the Palestinian Arabs in return for Palestine, and therefore there is no likelihood of any voluntary agreement being reached, so that all those who regard such an agreement as a condition, sine qua non for Zionism, may as well say non, and withdraw from Zionism. Zionist colonialism must either stop, or else proceed regardless of the native population, which means that it can only proceed and develop under the protection of a power that is independent of the native population, behind an iron wall which the native population cannot breach. End quote. This is Zionism, post the outbreak of violence, shedding its fantasies of setting the entire world a wonderful example of how to treat native people. It is now getting down to the dirty business of colonialism. I'd suggest it would have been impossible for Zionism to get off the ground without such fantasies. If the reality of how brutal this project would necessarily be had been acknowledged from the start, I doubt it would have attracted sufficient adherence. At this point, however, the sunk cost fallacy has kicked in, and it's too late to turn back. In many ways, Jabotinsky's observations echo those of anti-Zionist Asher Ginsburg, who I quoted in the last episode. Ginsburg also cautioned against underestimating the Arabs, and stated that they would not just step aside easily when Jews tried to take their place. Rather than seeing this as a reason to abandon Zionism, however, Jabotinsky took it as a barrier to push through. As much as the Iron War dispenses with old fantasies, it also brings new ones to replace them and keep the Zionist project going. 
Jabotinsky holds that it is only voluntary agreement that is impossible. Quote, This does not mean that there cannot be any agreement with the Palestine Arabs. What is impossible is a voluntary agreement. As long as the Arabs feel that there is the least hope of getting rid of us, they will refuse to give up this hope in return for either kind words or for bread and butter, because they are not a rabble, but a living people. And when a living people yields in matters of such a vital character, it is only when there is no longer any hope of getting rid of us, because they can make no breach in the iron wall. Not till then will they drop their extremist leaders, whose watchword is never, and the leadership will pass to moderate groups, who will approach us with a proposal that we should both agree to mutual concessions. Then we may expect them to discuss honestly practical questions, such as a guarantee against Arab displacement, or equal rights for Arab citizens, or Arab national integrity. End quote. As I've mentioned, Jabotinsky is widely regarded to have had a brilliant mind. I must say, this doesn't come across at all in the Iron War. If an agreement is not voluntary, then it must be involuntary. An involuntary agreement is another oxymoron, more accurately called domination. I do wonder what a relationship book by Jabotinsky would have read like. A man who doesn't gain voluntary agreement from his wife simply has to beat her until he gains involuntary agreement. You can swap the genders there if you wish. Jabotinsky is aware that, as he puts it, quote, A minority always suffers everywhere. The Christians in Turkey, the Muslims in India, the Irish under the British, the Poles under the Czechs and Germans, now the Germans under the Poles and Czechs, and so forth, without end. End quote. Referring to equal rights, he then states that, quote, One must be intoxicated with rhetoric to expect the Arabs to believe that the Jews, of all the people in the world, will alone prove able, or will, at least, honestly intend to realise an idea that has not succeeded with other nations who are with much greater authority, end quote. Jabotinsky, however, does impose this magical power, the power not to dominate minorities, on Jews and Jews alone. In spite of admitting it would require intoxication to believe, he writes, quote, I am prepared to take an oath, binding ourselves and our descendants, that we shall never do anything contrary to the principle of equal rights, and that we shall never try to eject anyone. This seems to me a fairly peaceful credo. End quote. The problem with this is that it's hard enough to bind oneself to an oath in a world where both self and circumstance change. Jabotinsky, of course, had absolutely no power to bind either his contemporaries or his descendants to anything. He concludes by writing that when the Arabs see that they cannot overcome the Iron Wall, quote, I am convinced that we Jews will be found ready to give them satisfactory guarantees so that both peoples can live in peace like good neighbours. I would contend the Iron Wall essay performs a dual function. Firstly, it tells Zionists concerned with ethics to wake up and recognise that theirs is an aggressive colonial project. Secondly, it soothes the ethical concerns of such Zionists with a lie. The lie is that domination will only be temporary and will eventually lead to harmony. This is a kind of utopian thinking, and to quote Peter Hitchens, the problem of a utopia is that it can only be approached across a sea of blood and you never arrive. We see the ideology of the Iron Wall operating today. It is in the very name of Israel's defence system, the Iron Dome. If you can't build good relationships with your neighbours, you instead build a missile shield. 
It is in the comments from the opening clip of the Israeli ambassador Zippy Hotavelli, who holds open the possibility of a Marshall Plan for Gaza, but only after total domination has been achieved. It's the attitude which enables Israeli politician Danny Ayalon to call for collective punishment, as was deftly exposed by Mark Lamont Hill. Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, said that he was deeply distressed by Israel's, Israel's announcement of a siege on the Gaza Strip. He said that the humanitarian situation, quote, will only deteriorate exponentially and that crucial life-saving supplies, including fuel, food, and water, must be allowed into Gaza. So the UN is saying you must do this. You are saying you're not going to do this. Um, how do you- No, we're not, we're not saying that. He's saying, do it, yeah, he's saying doing it immediately. Is- what I'm saying is what, you, what you're doing. No, no. He's saying doing it doing, okay. doing immediately. I, yeah. I got you. I'll tell you exactly what we're saying. I'm saying we will do everything for the Gazan people. Once and now, we demand immediate surrender, unconditional surrender of Hamas. If Hamas people come out with their hands up and clear their weapons, believe me, everything will be restored to Gaza. It is Hamas in Hamas hands. That, okay, if now I understand. Care- that, thank you for clarifying that, sir. I, I think I think I think we're actually on the same page here. You're saying that once Hamas leaves, you'll you'll grant the the, the Gazan people food, shelter, fuel, electricity, hospitals, schooling. And in, and if they don't, and, and if Hamas doesn't leave, then they'll continue to starve and die in hospitals. You are defining for the international community right now collective punishment. You're saying until until Hamas acts differently, the two million people in Gaza are going to be treated this way. And once Hamas acts differently, these two million people in Gaza will be treated better. That is exactly what collective punishment is. You're holding them accountable for the actions of others. That is the definition, the textbook definition of, of, of collective punishment, sir. Now, you may you, you may accept that that's what you want to do, but this is absolutely a contravention of international law. Jabotinsky must have received criticism for his blunt essay, as during the same year, he felt the need to publish a follow-up piece, The Ethics of the Iron Wall, defending it. In The Iron Wall, he only touched upon the issue of ethics, and not very coherently. Now he writes, quote, The world must be a place of cooperation and mutual goodwill. If we are to live, we should all live in the same way, and if we are to die, we should all die in the same way. But there is no morality, no ethics that concedes the right of a glutton to gorge, while more tempered people die of starvation. There is only one possible morality, that of humanity. Let us consider for a moment the point of view of those to whom this seems immoral. We shall trace the root of the evil to this, that we are seeking to colonise a country against the wishes of its population, in other words, by force. Everything else that is undesirable grows out of this root with axiomatic inevitability. What, then, is to be done? There are no more uninhabited islands in the world. In every oasis there is a native population, settled from times immemorial, who will not tolerate an immigrant majority or an invasion of outsiders, so that if there is any landless people in the world, even its dream of a national home must be an immoral dream. Those who are landless must remain landless to all eternity. The whole earth has been allocated. Basta, morality has said so. From the Jewish point of view, morality has a particularly interesting appearance. It is said that we Jews number 15 million people scattered throughout the world. Half of them are now literally homeless, poor, hunted wretches. The number of Arabs totals 38 million. They inhabit Morocco, Algeria, Tunis, Tripoli, Egypt, Syria, 
Arabia and Iraq, an area that apart from desert equals the size of half Europe. There are in this vast area 16 Arabs to the square mile. It's instructive to recall by way of comparison that Sicily has 352 and England 669 inhabitants to the square mile. It is still more instructive to recall that Palestine constitutes about one two hundredth part of this area. Yet if homeless Jewry demands Palestine for itself, it is immoral, because it does not suit the native population. Such morality may be accepted among cannibals, but not in a civilised world. The soil does not belong to those who possess land in excess, but to those who do not possess any. It is an act of simple justice to alienate part of their land from those nations who are numbering amongst the great landowners of the world in order to provide a place of refuge for a homeless, wandering people. And if such a big landowning nation resists, which is perfectly natural, it must be made to comply by compulsion. End quote. It is this last paragraph that is so revealing. Jabotinsky believes in a redistribution of land from those who have more to those who have less on a collective basis. Collectively, Arabs have too much land, and therefore must be compelled to give some to the Jews. This of course totally disregards the individual as the basis for property rights. I would suggest this is the heart of the whole problem. Jabotinsky employs the further justification of the Jews being, collectively, the historical owners of the land. Begin quote. All sorts of catchwords are used against Zionism. People invoke democracy, majority rule, national self-determination, which means that the Arabs, being at present the majority in Palestine, have the right of self-determination and may therefore insist that Palestine must remain an Arab country. Democracy and self-determination are sacred principles, but sacred principles, like the name of the Lord, must not be used in vain, to bolster up a swindle, to conceal an injustice. The principle of self-determination does not mean that if someone has seized a stretch of land it must remain his possession for all time, and that he who was forcibly ejected from his land must always remain homeless. Self-determination means revision, such a revision of the distribution of the earth among the nations that those nations who have too much should have to give up some of it to those nations who have not enough, or who have none, so that all should have some place on which to exercise their right of self-determination. And now, when the whole of the civilised world has recognised that Jews have a right of return to Palestine, which means that the Jews are, in principle, also citizens and inhabitants of Palestine, only they were driven out, and their return must be a lengthy process, it is wrong to contend that meanwhile the local population has the right to refuse to allow them to come back and to call that democracy. End quote. Jabotinsky knew that an iron wall really meant war between Jews and Arabs, a fact he was prepared for. In a letter to a fellow Zionist, he wrote, quote, Even our vegetarian friends, Jabotinsky's term for Zionist opposed to violence, must realise by now that we are faced with only two possibilities, either to forget about Palestine or to fight a war for it. Today we number a mere 12% of the population and aspire to reach 20%. That's why so few Arabs realise the threat to them. The real battle will begin when we reach 30% and set our sights on 51%. We have to prepare for that day. It would be foolish to ask at this point how military training for a Jew in Austria might someday prove useful in Palestine. Those responsible when the time comes will find ways and means of answering this. 
provided there are trained Jews in every country from which it is possible to sail for Palestine. End quote. It is again interesting to note the role reversal, where Zionism, the thing that is meant to protect Jews, now requires Jews from around the world to sacrifice their lives for it. I've looked at the effect the Iron War had on Israel, but I think it's also instructive to look at the effect this had on Jabotinsky personally. Violence in Palestine substantially increased throughout the 1930s, just as Jabotinsky had predicted it would. One problem of believing in the inevitability of violence is that you don't take any action to stop it, as to do so would be futile. In 1931, revisionist Zionists broke away from the Haganah to form the more radical militant group, the Ergun. When Arabs killed innocent Jews, the Ergun responded in kind. They would go on to kill hundreds of innocent Arabs, as well as many British police officers. Initially, Jabotinsky held that punishing only the guilty was an ethical fundamental. As time went by, however, his morals compromised. He was expelled from Palestine by the British, and did not have that much control over his men's actions anyway, and asked not to be told of them in advance. Hillel Halkin writes that this was a way to avoid compromising the revisionist party and its institutions while easing his own discomfort. In 1937, he reportedly told revisionist leaders that I see nothing heroic about shooting an Arab peasant in the back for bringing vegetables on his donkey to Tel Aviv. When the British hanged an Ergun member for attempting to murder all the Arab passengers aboard a bus, Jabotinsky's belief in equal rights fell apart. He engaged in special pleading, due to the Arabs having collectively initiated the violence. In a letter to the British colonial secretary, he wrote, I know all that can be said in support of the sentence, that the law should apply equally to Jews and Arabs, but this is a theory repellent to the very essence of public decency. I urge you to remember that the Arab terror has by now lasted two years. I beg you to visualise it, to try and realise, palpably, what those two years mean in sorrow and humiliation. The whole atmosphere is madness. The Jewish people would never get reconciled to a situation which first drives youngsters to the verge of madness and then hangs them. End quote. A year later, Jabotinsky rejected the very concept that there could be innocent victims in war writing, There's no point in returning to the childish argument about the moral value of Havlaga. Don't you dare punish the innocent, we are told. What a superficial, hypocritical thing to say. In war, in all war, both sides are always innocent. What crime against me has the enemy soldier committed? He's a poor beggar just like me, conscripted against his will. If another European war breaks out, We'll all demand an embargo on the enemy country in order to starve its inhabitants with their women and children. The first air raid on London and Paris will lead to retaliation against Stuttgart and Milan, which are full of women and children too. Damned be every war, in every form. There's no difference between defence and attack. If you don't want to harm the innocent, you can die. If you don't want to die, shoot and don't blabber. End quote. This is rich given it was a war Jabotinsky knowingly started. Perhaps the Iron Wall hadn't proved as impenetrable as he'd anticipated. In a complete reversal of his initial moral sense, he went on to fully embrace terrorism, stating, quote, Jews can't let themselves be seen on the roads of Palestine, but an Arab in Tel Aviv feels at home. He gets up in the morning and sets out and knocks on the Jews' door and says, Good morning, I've brought you some vegetables. And nothing happens. 
He's not afraid of being harmed. How long can this go on? Forever? Why, under such circumstances, should the Arabs stop what they're doing? Who doesn't understand that the greatest enemy of equality for Jews is he who says that the means used by Arabs in their war against us was not be used by us against them? End quote. Hillel Hauken points out that Jabotinsky, as the commander-in-chief of the Ergon, had chosen to ignore what he had written as the author of his novel, The Five, where he stated that the moral equilibrium of humanity rests on age-old inhibitions that, though they may retain their power when breached in practice, crumble to dust when challenged in theory. Kill an innocent peddler, and you have killed but an innocent peddler. Ask, but why should killing an innocent peddler be forbidden, and nothing is forbidden anymore? End quote. You might need to listen to that twice, but it's worth it. Jabotinsky died of a heart attack in 1940. He did not live to see the founding of Israel, or the massacres and ethnic cleansing his Ergon fighters would enact to ensure this new state's Jewish majority. We don't know then whether he would have ultimately sacrificed this principle too. In many ways, I think his life is a microcosm of the Zionist project itself. A noble goal intended to save the most vulnerable, but one that was prepared to make temporary moral sacrifices that ultimately consumed it. The great hero and defender of Jewish lives ultimately became a terrorist who sanctioned the murder of innocent Arabs. The Iron Wall was as flawed as it sounds. Obviously domination doesn't lead to reconciliation. It can only ever lead to more domination, as we're seeing in Gaza today. Thank you for listening. I'll link to the two essays of Jabotinsky's I've quoted from, as well as other sources. Overwhelmingly, I've drawn on Hillel Halkin's biography, Jabotinsky, A Life. My details are in the info box, and any donations to keep the show going are greatly appreciated. On that note, when researching outbreaks of mob violence for the last episode, I came across an interesting take on the madness, or maybe sanity, of crowds. I've created a short bonus episode on it, and I'll send a link to anyone who donates or has donated. Just drop me an email. This is something I'd like to do more of, as it's an opportunity to develop ideas in a less polished form too. I've also included a link to Christian Aid's Gaza Crisis Appeal. 